Good morning. Good Good to see everyone here today. As we conclude our study together for the time being of the subject of Scripture, we don't very often talk about Scripture as a subject in itself, but we have been for a number of weeks now and are continuing that. Before I begin, I want to uh, ask your um, special concern and prayer for a group of us, John Wojciechowski and, and I and four others will be leaving Thursday for Ukraine. And uh, we would certainly appreciate your prayers. We want to visit the churches in Rivna and Jatomir, the orphanage in uh, Rivna, and uh, take help for them. And we appreciate you participating in that contribution that we had just a moment ago and know that you have been generous in that, as you always are. But please do keep us in, uh, in your prayers. One of, our, one of our big concerns, there's the usual concerns about uh, that kind of travel, but one of the big concerns is, is that everybody gets in. Uh, because the uh, Ukrainians are kind of hit and miss about how they do COVID testing and one thing and then another. And some people are getting in and some are getting in and then getting to quarantine for two weeks. And uh, others are being told you can't come in. So please keep us in your prayers that all six of us will uh, be able to get in and, and do the, uh, the, the teaching and the encouragement that we want to do for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we should have read all of Psalms 119. <laughs> You know, in ancient Israel, they memorized it. You know, the the psalm, the reason it's so long is that you have all these stanzas, 22 of them, each one of them beginning with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And that was done for the purposes of memorization. So next week, no, we we won't try that. Uh, But folks were uh, much more into memorizing scripture than we are now. But Psalms 119 is such a magnificent a piece of scripture. It is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. But far more important than that is what these verses are about. They're about God's word. They're about the commandments. They're about the, the testimonies. They're about the precepts. They're uh, about the rules. They're about the laws. And, and how blessed God's people are when we keep those, when we live by those, and how different our lives will be in living by uh, God's word. Now, that means, as we observed last week, that the psalmist is assuming that God's word can be understood. He is assuming that God's word has a meaning. It has a specific, objective meaning. Otherwise, how can we walk by it? Verse 105 is the best-known verse in the whole psalm. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And we just sang that. How can the word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path unless we can understand it? Unless it has an objective meaning, unless it throws a light where we need it to help us walk through this world. Now, last week we said that understanding scripture implies that we must have that objective meaning that the author intended in in the case of scripture that God intended. The meaning that God intended for us to get from his word. It isn't just whatever we make of it. That's the way the Bible gets approached too often. People read the scripture and then sort of look at one another and say, what do you make of that? And, and we think that just almost anything is, uh, is valid. And that's not the case. We need to look at scripture and say, what does it say? What did God intend us to understand from this? So the task then of understanding scripture is uncovering what God himself wanted to say to us. So last Sunday, I made some suggestions about that, how to go about understanding the Bible. We talked about using a good translation that you can understand. We talked about reading whole books 
not just isolated verses. We talked about reading the scriptural text in context to make sure that we're not trying to make something out of them that wasn't what they originally meant. So this morning, I want to offer you some more suggestions, how to understand God's word, how to understand the scripture. Here's the first one. Look for the big idea in the text that you read. The big idea, whether it's a verse, a parable, a story, a letter, whatever it is, look for the big idea. Now, what does that mean, the big idea? The big idea is the main thought that is conveyed by the text. Any text may have subtopics in it. It may have things that are said in it that are important in it, but each text should have one main thought, one big idea that God is seeking to convey to us. Now, let me give you an example of this. I hope you'll uh, open your Bible with me to John 3, verses 1 through 5. I think these are familiar words, but I'd like for you to be looking at them as we think together about them. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, five verses in that paragraph. What is the big idea of that text? It's really not hard to see, is it? It's what's discussed over and over. It's the new birth. That's the big idea. But now the question is, what does the text say about that big idea? See, there's two questions we have to ask. One is, what is the big idea? What is the main topic? And then the other one is, what does it say about what it's about? And in this case, it is about the new birth. There's no question about that. But then what does it say about the new birth? Well, you notice it says several things. First of all, Jesus says it is possible to be born again. Nicodemus didn't know that. Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about another physical birth, and Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being born again of the water and the Spirit. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. So the possibility of that new birth, and then secondly, there is the necessity of that new birth. Jesus said that unless one is born anew, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's pretty important, isn't it? You can't enter God's kingdom without the new birth. And then the third thing that he says about the new birth is that a person is born again by water and by the Spirit. Now, John 3 doesn't explain that, but as you look elsewhere in the Bible, you'll find that we are born of the water and of the Spirit when we're baptized into Christ and God's Holy Spirit comes to live within us. Then we are a new person. So the big idea of the text is the new birth. And then what is the text about? It's about the new birth. What does it say about what it's about? It says the new birth is possible. It's necessary. And it's of the water and the spirit. It's not really hard to do that. It's not really hard to get at the big idea of a text. You just need to read the text uh, enough and keep reading it and thinking about it 
until it becomes evident to you. What does it say, and what does it say about what it's about? That's how you get at the big idea of the text. Suggestion number two, don't ask what a text means until you've asked what it meant. Okay, don't ask what it means until you've asked what it meant. See, here's the thing. You and I are not the first readers of these texts. When Paul wrote Romans, he was not writing it consciously, at least, to the Glen Allen Church in Richmond in 2021. When Paul wrote Romans, he was writing it to a specific congregation in a particular part of the Roman Empire at a particular point in history. The same is true of all of the Bible. When John wrote Revelation, he wrote it to the seven churches in Asia Minor who were undergoing persecution. When Jesus told his parables, he was telling them to audiences on Galilean hillsides in the first century A.D. who lived under Roman rule. There are all kinds of differences between them and us. But at the same time, there are all kinds of similarities. question is, though, how do we apply a biblical text today? That's an important question. But before we know how to apply it, we have to know what it says. We have to know what it says. And we have to ask not just what does it mean to me, but what did it mean then? And then when we know what it meant then, then we can think about how do I apply it today? How do I apply it in my life now? There's a good rule of thumb that's uh, outlined by uh, Gordon Fee uh, and Douglas Stewart in their book on, on uh, studying and teaching the Bible. They say this, a scripture cannot mean what it never meant. A scripture cannot mean what it never meant. Now think about that for a minute. A scripture cannot mean what it never meant. It can't mean something now that it never meant in the first century. So if we come up with a meaning in our minds of a scripture, and that meaning couldn't possibly fit into a first century context, then we've not properly understood that scripture. There's a difference between meaning and application. We try to understand the meaning as it was to them, and then we apply it to ourselves. So the question becomes, what is that meaning, and then how do we apply it to ourselves? Let me give you an example of that. 1 Corinthians 13. We all heard that one over and over, haven't we? Paul's beautiful statement about love. Love, he said, is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love never ends. Such a beautiful text of Scripture. And taken in isolation from its context, and by the way, it usually is. We almost never think about it in its context. But we usually take it out of its context as simply a beautiful poem about the subject of love. And so you'll see it on posters with a beautiful photograph. And, and maybe you'll see it embroidered and hung on somebody's bathroom wall. You may hear it read at a wedding uh, as exemplifying love between husband and wife and uh, all of those, those uh, different ways, and, and those are fine. But in context, what, why did Paul say this about love? Well, in the context of 1 Corinthians, that chapter, that beautiful poem about love, is a part, part of Paul's argument against the abuse of spiritual gifts. Because the Corinthians had all kinds of spiritual gifts. They could speak in tongues. That's why Paul mentions that. They could prophesy. They could do all these different things. And yet they were abusing those spiritual gifts. They were not using them for one another's good. They were just using them to build themselves up. 
And so Paul writes chapter 12 about that, and then he writes chapter 13 and says, but love is so far superior. And if you're going to strive for something, don't strive to excel in the gifts so much. Strive for love. And then in chapter 14, he continues that discussion by outlining how the gifts should and should not be used. So that's what that chapter is about in its context. And it's important that we, that we see that. Now, once we understand that, then we can ask, okay, what does that mean for us as believers today? How do we apply it? I can't speak in tongues. You can't prophesy. But what do we do with this great text on love that Paul gave in that context? See, now we're talking about application. But first we need to understand what the text meant, and then we know how to apply the text. Once we understand that, it's okay to ask, what does it mean for today? So before we can ask what it means, we have to ask what it meant. No scripture can mean today something that it never meant when it was first written. Third suggestion, accept the plain meaning of scripture unless it's obviously intended to be poetic or symbolic. Just accept the plain meaning of it unless it's intended to be poetic or symbolic. Have you ever had somebody ask you the question, you don't take the Bible literally, do you? That's a loaded question. You have to be careful with that one because the, there are parts of the Bible that are intended to be taken literally. And there are parts of it that aren't. And I don't take literally the parts that aren't intended to be taken literally. And it's pretty obvious uh, when, those, uh, are the, when that's the case. Some are obviously poetic. Uh, let me give you an example. Isaiah 55, verse 12. Isaiah said, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I don't take that literally, do you? I have never heard a mountain sing. Uh, I have seen Julie Andrews sing up on top of a mountain uh, in a movie, but I've never heard a mountain sing. Trees don't clap their hands. They sometimes blow back and forth, and sometimes they break off, and sometimes they fall, but they do not clap their hands. I don't think they have hands, at least not in the part of Texas where I grew up. But then we didn't have a lot of trees either. So I, I don't take that literally, and it's not meant to be taken literally. You get the point. The joy of the people of Israel is going to be so great, it's as though the mountains themselves burst forth into song and that the trees are applauding the great things that God has done. Here's another one, Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz is speaking to Ruth, and he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Does God have wings? Is there anything in Scripture that suggests that God has wings? No. The image is that of a, of a bird, probably a mother hen, who gathers her chickens under her wings. Some of the Psalms talk about that, about God gathering his people under his wings and protecting them. So we don't take that passage literally. Now, on the other hand, we don't want to be too quick to regard something as poetic are symbolic just because we're not too sure what to do with it. Let me give you an example of that. The feeding of the 5,000, Matthew chapter 14. Some folks read that and say that's not literal. Jesus didn't take five 
loaves of bread and two fish and bless them and feed a, a crowd of 5,000 men plus the women and children. That's got to be a parable, we're told. Parable of what? Well, the explanation usually is it's a parable about the power of sharing. You know, that when you share like that little boy, he becomes the centerpiece. Isn't that odd in that whole story that the little boy becomes the centerpiece? The little boy becomes the centerpiece, and because he's willing to give up his five loaves and two fish, everybody can eat. Isn't that great? Well, that's kind of sweet, but it's not, it's not what the text is about. The text is about a miracle performed by Jesus, the Son of God. The text is about Jesus demonstrating both to his followers and to the crowds that when you bring your resources to God and use them for him, there's always enough and left over. Twelve baskets were left over. You ever wondered why there weren't 11 or 13? Because there were 12 apostles. Jesus wanted them to know when I send you out to do the work of the kingdom, you don't ever have to wonder if there's going to be enough. There'll be enough in despair. That's what that text is about. It's not a parable. It's not, a, it's not a, a hard for us to get. It's not poetic. Just take it as it, at its plain meaning. Now, there are times when it's not exactly clear if something is meant to be taken poetically or not. That I get. That I understand. And in those cases, we need to proceed with caution. And we need to keep an open mind. And we need to ask ourselves, what would it mean if it were poetic? What does it mean if it's not? And think about it and try to decide which one we think that it is. But unless it's clearly poetic or clearly symbolic, simply take it for what it says. Suggestion number four. Take time to think about what you've read. Take time to think about what you've read. The idea isn't just to cover a certain number of verses or to be able to say, I've read the Bible today. Think about what you have read. Learn to practice the lost art of meditation. The Bible talks a lot about meditation. Meditation simply means thinking deeply about great truths and their application. It takes time to meditate. Meditation is not emptying your mind. It is filling it, filling it with noble thoughts. It is filling it with worthwhile thoughts. But we're in such a hurry, aren't we? We're in such a hurry. We like to have our messages reduced to us in sound bites and in tweets uh, and, and in abbreviations. We, we like that. We just get it done and then we move on. I saw a headline not long ago that said this. It said, SCOTUS to take up Roe v. Wade. Now, some people are not even going to know what that means. What in the world is SCOTUS? Well, SCOTUS is the Supreme Court of the United States. They are to take up Roe v. Wade. What's Roe v. Wade? You probably know that. Roe versus Wade, that Supreme Court case in 1973 that's led to 65 million deaths of unborn children. That's what that means. It's easy to see the headline. It's quick. But it's different when you stop and think about it, isn't it? It's easy sometimes to just read through verses and say, okay, I read the Bible. But what we need to do is take time to absorb what we read, to think about it, to tuck it away in our brains. 
I hope you notice Psalms 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart, or I believe the translation John was reading from says, I have hidden it. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, storing up God's word in your heart could be a reference to memorizing. I'm not so sure that it's about memorizing so much as it is about taking it to heart. It's about storing it in there. I read that, and I thought about it, and I'm not likely to forget it. I may not be able to quote it, but I'm going to remember what it says. By the way, I think our big problem with memorization is that we are trying to memorize words that we've not taken to heart. When you take the words to heart, you'll find you will remember them, or at least you'll remember the gist of what they say. That comes through meditation. That comes through thinking about what we have read. And Psalms 119, verses 15 and 16 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Did you see that? I'll meditate on your precepts. I'll fix my eyes on your ways. And then I will delight in your statutes. And what? I will not forget your word. As he said in verse 11, that I might not sin against you. Psalms 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Not just reading it, but thinking about it, meditating on it. Bottom line is, Bible study takes time. It takes time. You have to set aside time in your life. That's what you have to do. You can't make time because you've only got so much, but you have to set aside the time to think about God's word uh, in your life, to study it, to think about it, to think about how it applies in your life. And you can do that sometimes even when you're doing other things. You can be thinking about the word. You can be thinking about it. But think about the things that you have read. Suggestion five, read prayerfully and with a submissive spirit. Prayer is one of the most important tools that there is for studying the Bible. There are a lot of good tools for studying the Bible, but perhaps the most powerful is prayer itself. Ask God to open your mind. Ask God to help you see what is there and to understand his word. Ask God to help you to see what it is that he's wanting to tell you. Remember that Bible study is not about information. It's about transformation. It's about us being changed into the likeness of Christ. It's about us being more and more like him every day that we live. And, and it's, uh, we need to take time to think about that. But also we need to think about what we should do and how we should change our lives. That's praying and with a submissive spirit. God, help me to see what, what I need to do from this text. Help me to understand how you want me to change. Help me to see how my life needs to be more like the life of Jesus. I'll make you a promise this morning that if you come before God prayerfully seeking to understand and do his will, he will not send you away empty. He won't do it. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it. In the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. For what? They shall be filled. 
If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you seek it in God's word, you seek it prayerfully, you seek it with a submissive spirit, you will be filled. And that leads us to number six. Live what you learn. Live what you learn. Scripture isn't a collection of theories about God. It's not what it is. It's not a book of philosophy. Rather, Scripture is designed to lead us to know God and become like Jesus. So once you know from Scripture what God wants you to do, do it. And do it right away. Don't think, I need to, I need to do that one of these days. Do it right away. Don't think I need to change in that way, and I'll do that sometime. Change right away. Do what you see that God wants you to do in Scripture. In James 1, verses 22 to 25, James talks about being doers of the Word and not hearers only. It's kind of a, kind of a humorous text because James says that the person who looks into the Word of God and doesn't do anything is, is like a person who looks at his natural face in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he was like. I would not for $100 let you see what I saw this morning when I first looked in the mirror. <laughs> Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Nor would I leave the house looking that way. I mean, if I, if I go outside the house before I have time to, you know, make the necessary overhaul, I've got to at least put on a cap or something, you know, because I'll toss and turn during the night and my hair just stick right straight up like a corkscrew. And I know you're thinking, well, it won't show much, but you're right. But, you know, still, I wouldn't think about doing that. Wouldn't we think about looking into God's word and seeing, I need to change this way and one of these days I'll get around to that. James says that's how we are if we look into God's word and we don't do it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, he says. And when you are a doer of the word, he said there are results that you can look for. Number one, he says you will be changed by God's spirit. You'll be changed. We studied several months ago from Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit. God's uh, spirit produces his fruit within us when we are determined to become more like Christ. And the spirit will produce that fruit. You'll be blessed in your doing, James says, because you're obedient. It will open you up to the possibility of even greater blessings. You will also understand even more and gain more wisdom by doing what God wants you to do. You will have more insight because you are doing what God wants you to do. In Psalms 111 and verse 10, the psalmist said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. All those who practice it have a good understanding. So take Scripture seriously. Don't dabble in it. Don't just play around the edges of it. Take it in. You're not taking it seriously until you have begun to follow Jesus, until you've committed yourself to follow him, because that's where all the scripture is pointing is to God's son, Jesus. And until you have done that, you've committed yourself to follow him and you've confessed him to be God's son. You've been baptized into him. You're not taking the scripture seriously. But once you do that, 
then you will begin knowing Scripture and will begin a, a lifelong endeavor through which God will bless you both now and for eternity. But look into the Word and then don't wait to do it. Let's stand together and sing.